Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabadek and Shant Karnikian. Say hello, Shant. That's me. Hi. What, what are we going to do today, Shant? We're going to talk about cases. That's we are? right. We're okay. going to talk about very legal exciting. cases. Very right? exciting. And this time we're going to talk about legal cases that come from, I think, the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, and the Ninth Circuit. We've got one of each. Good variety today. It's good variety. They're cases that I think these cases today are kind of interesting. I'm not sure they're everyday issues that confront people in their practices, but they're important to know. They're, they're, I, might, I might say they're sort of obscure. And the California Supreme Court case that we're going to talk about, I think, historically is very interesting. Yeah, it's we'll good history. It, it goes to show how things have changed. Uh, but before we get started, you can find us online at kvklawyers.com. We appreciate you guys listening. We're, we're slowly coming up on a year of us doing this, and we haven't gotten sued for it. We haven't gotten any complaints with the FCC. FCC has not shut us down. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think they have jurisdiction over us. But, what? Yeah, well... Maybe that's a good thing. But uh, we appreciate all the feedback we've gotten. Thank you so much for the support. And uh, you can find us online. If you have any questions, reach out to either Brian or I or anyone here. Anyway, so the, the four cases we're going to talk about, the first one involves attorney fees in a class action. And I know many of our listeners do that, so there's some uh, interesting stuff there. Then we're going to talk about waiver of a jury trial in an agreement and how that's actually not enforceable. Um, then we're going to talk about service of a uh, service on government entities when you have a discrimination uh, claim. And then we're going to talk about the California Supreme Court case that Brian mentioned that involves interest rates and usury laws and ballot initiatives and referendums and how those all kind of interact with each other and changes we've seen in those laws. Great. So should we get started? Let's start. Let's with take the first a vote. One. Who wants to get started? I don't want to get started. Let's just end it now. Okay. You put people out of their misery. Let's get started. Let's get started. Fine. So Johnson fir- versus MGM is the first case. Johnson right. versus MGM. Ninth Circuit case. Out of actually out of the state of Washington, but just as relevant, I think, to anything that we're Absolutely. going to talk about. Absolutely, because it does have to do with um, the way fees are calculated in the Ninth Circuit or the way they're looked at in the Ninth Circuit. So this case involved a very, very important right, fundamental, right. very important case, um, very important. These are real defenders of justice here. Uh, so Mary Johnson was a class representative acting on behalf of other consumers who purchased what did she a purchase? James Bond DVD set that purported to include all the Bond films, every gorgeous girl, nefarious villain, and charismatic star. But it didn't. It did and not. And there's the outrage. It did not. What there's did it the include? public outrage. What did it not include? It did not include Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again, which I think are the Daniel Craig movies, right? Could be, but Casino Royale, I think you told me before we went on the air, there's an original and then there was a remake, right? That's right. And Daniel yeah. Craig, the original was back in the 60s. So I Daniel Craig was the, wasn't in that? He was not. Okay. Did you see that one in theaters? I saw that one in a theater. Oh, wait a minute. You just backed <laughs> me into that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so anyway, so they filed this class action, right. and then they reach a settlement. I think, based on the reading of this, it looks like it's settled for the, the value, the benefit achieved for the class, according to the, the lawyers making the fee application, was $136,600, or $138,600. So, so that, I don't know if it was a claims-made type settlement, if it was a benefit that was conferred upon people automatically— or if people just got a DVD of Never Say Never Again and <laughs> Casino Royale. Yeah, or maybe access to like stream it online or something. What's um, that? Never mind, Brian. Um, anyway, so they the, the part of this part of the settlement agreement says that plaintiff can move for fees or defendant won't oppose plaintiff's making a fee application uh, up to three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a, a case where the benefit was one hundred and thirty eight. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but you know. 
that happens, right? And sometimes that happens. Let's not make fun of it. And, and look, these are important rights. I mean, where do you draw the line? This could be a slip. I don't slip know if it's slope. an important right, <laughs> but let's just agree. Let's in theory, agree it can be that that if somebody sold a set of Bond movies and they think they're getting all the Bond movies, <laughs> and then they open it up under the Christmas tree and they find that they're missing "Never be- Say Never Again" and "Casino Royale," that's going to ruin their whole day. I'd be outraged. Outraged. Okay. What if those are your favorites? What if those two were your favorites? You might send the DVD back and you might, want to get you your money back. And write a bad review on Amazon and go, this didn't include two of my favorites. Uh, but anyway, so they make a fee application for $350,000. The district court cuts down their fees to $184,650. Still more than the amount of the benefit conferred upon the class. <laughs> yep. And a 25% reduction. So what the plaintiff argued was the reduction was arbitrary and capricious. It had no reasonable bearing in any facts. Which is, in an, on its face, a good argument. I mean, courts just can't do that. They've got to go through some kind of an analysis. There's a case called Inray Bluetooth. It's a pretty well-known case. That's the controlling case. If, you were ever, if you've ever done class actions in federal court and made fee applications, you know Inray Bluetooth. There's a number of factors there. And in that case... Um, court has to do a calculation of the reasonable amount of a fees, a comparison between the settlement attorney fees... Uh, and that there has to be a comparison about the lodestar amount and a reasonable percentage. So there's a number of factors. What the plaintiff was claiming in this case is the court didn't do that at all. And um, the the Ninth Circuit looked at this and they said, "Look, yes, you've got to do that analysis, but we we believe that the court did do an analysis." The plaintiff argued that the district court didn't provide a reasonable explanation for the 25%, and that's where it got kind of hung up, right? Yeah, and in fact, then the the, uh, the court here says there were six reasons that the district court gave in uh, reducing the fees. And I think this is the important part of the yeah, case, this and it is, really this appears is in a footnote. Yeah. But the six reasons are more like um, cautionary tales or lessons. Absolutely. You want to read them off? Well, I can. I can. Please. Do you please want me to so. read? Please. Do you know how to read? Uh, there was some of the reasons was there was some block billing. Number two, excessive time spent on law firm conferences that did not advance the case or interest of the class. So, you know, you got to be careful about these kind of entries you put in. You got to make it appear that, and I've seen bills before from other lawyers where endless, endless internal conferences and communications, and it looks frankly like they're padding. And I'm not saying these lawyers are padding. I'm not disparaging these lawyers. I'm just saying what the I've Th- seen. This is past. what the court approved too. Uh, I, mean, I mean, this is what they observed. So. Number three, unreasonable travel time billed without any showing that substantive work was performed. Don't quite understand that one. Travel time's travel time. Are they saying that if you're daking travel, you got to show that you're actually going to something that has to do substantive, with substantive with the work? Case? Maybe. As opposed yeah. to maybe like um, live while action, you travel. playing out Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again. That's funny. Thanks. That's funny. Uh, duplicative work. That's a bad one. We see that. Unsupported explanation of why hours requested were reasonable. So that would be some rational ra- uh, explanation for your time and why you did it. And then the wa- final one is puffery in describing the work performed. What's which that? Sounds like padding. Padding. Or inflating what you did up. or making it sound more important than what. So uh, good to know when you're making those fee applications because some judges are more stickler than others on them. Let's go to the next case, Sean. 
Next case is Handouche versus Lease Finance Group. That's a California Court of Appeal case from the first appellate district. It originates in Alameda County. This has to do with waiver of jury trial. So Handouche had signed an agreement with Lease Finance Group. I think they provide a credit card processing. Credit equipment. card processing, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Big business. And they had some sort of a dispute, and uh, Handouche sued them, the LFG, the defendant here. And the contract with LFG had language in there that had a New York forum selection clause, a New York choice of law clause, and a waiver of jury trial. You and we waive insofar as permitted by law, trial by jury in any dispute is what it said. Right. So the the real question here was, is the is this binding? So the first thing I want to say about this case, though, Sean, I think is really important to understand is it's not an arbitration agreement. If no. this were an arbitration agreement, it would probably be enforceable given the facts and circumstances yeah, of arbitration it agreements. Yeah. But it's it's an actual agreement that says if we have a dispute, we're going to litigate, and we're going to litigate in court. It's just that New York law is going to be followed, right? And you're going to waive a jury trial. We're going to litigate only in front of a judge, not in front of a jury, ultimately. So I think the best way to approach this case is to understand that for these kind of clauses to be enforceable, so you're you're basically looking at the law or choice of law of another jurisdiction besides California. California looks at one particular issue, which is whether or not the application of law of another state would violate substantive rights, primary substantive rights in California, right? And what is the right to a jury, Brian? Well, interesting. In New York, it's not inviolate. You like that word? That's that, my big it's word. A of big the day. word. Big inviolate. word. Inviolate. Yeah, it's like Sesame Street here. And that doesn't mean it's not violent. Right. Inviolate means it's you. That's you, a color, right? Violet. Right. Yeah. But not this yeah. in this case. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It, what it means in this case is you can't violate the right violate. to a jury trial. It's a, a fundamental trial, right. Which I love this case for that benefit. I wish the courts would adopt that when it comes to arbitration. But here it says you can't simply pre-dispute waive your right to a jury trial. Right. And uh, ultimately the court says – since and in New York, by the way, something to keep in mind: in New York, it's not an inviolate right. I think you mentioned that already. So, if this were to end up in New York, the New York or uh, New York court, New the York New York court would say there's no jury. Yeah, they'd you be fine with jury. that. There would be no so problem with that. That's where the real issue in this case starts. Which so, is, ultimately, the trial court kind of goes through an analysis of. Um, whether or not the choice of law and the form of selection are okay. But then what it comes down to is what Brian mentioned, that whether or not applying the law of that other state would violate some fundamental right you have in California. So it has to be a fundamental right, a substantive right. And then the court looked at it and said, is the right to a jury trial substantive or procedural? Because if it's procedural, then it might be okay to apply New York law. And what the court says is that the the right to a jury trial is really an open question in California, if if it's procedural or substantive. Yeah, but but, but it's it's close enough to being substantive where we don't want to err on the side of just saying, oh, it's procedural, so it's not a big deal. That's ultimately what they came down yeah. with. They said, and, and, they said that it's it's even if it's procedural, it is so um, intimately bound up with the state's substantive decision-making that, it, that it's not waivable. You yeah. can't so ultimately, it. they conclude that the trial court erred in enforcing the forum selection clause in favor of New York, uh, where the clause uh, would include a jury waiver. One Final- thing to keep in mind is if this – Perhaps I, I would venture to guess that if this didn't include a jury waiver and it was just a New York form selection, New York choice of law, I think this would be enforceable. 
that type of forum selection. But I think it's the, the inclusion of the jury waiver that makes it unenforceable. Well, was it a forum selection or was it a, a applying the law of New York? The I case think was, could be litigated yeah. here, but, yeah. the, but the law of New York would apply. Yeah. And, and the last thing I want to comment on this case is at the very end of the case, the defendant made an argument and said, well, there wasn't going to be a jury trial here anyways because these were equitable claims that were being brought. And the court looked at that and said, well, that's not really true because there's also a fraud claim and that's not equity. Yeah. But open question, waiver of jury trial, but all the claims that are being brought by the plaintiff are um, equitable claims are non non jury claims court claims anyways would it make a difference I don't know I don't know that's a good question I, I think it might render it moot but that would require a court of appeal if they're analyzing this to rule on whether or not those things uh, and know. does other New York law apply yeah all right Le- leaving those questions open and okay. our, our listeners hanging. Uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, Silba, S-I-L-B-A-U-G-H versus Elaine Chow. Do you know who that is, Brian? Elaine Chow is the Secretary of the Department of Transportation and... Mitch McConnell's wife. Correct. Moscow Mitch, right? And that's his nickname? Is that his name? Is that what he goes by, Moscow Mitch? I think so, at home. Yeah, that's his Twitter handle, um, <laughs> at home. Um, so very straightforward case here. Yeah. The the underlying facts are kind of irrelevant. I, I think it had something to do with um, the in, this person, uh, Silba, being discharged or disciplined. Her employment I think it's a terminated. discrimination claim, yeah. yeah. But from the federal government. So what is she She worked do? at the FAA, first of all. So uh, whenever, you, whenever you're going to sue a government agency like that, like the FAA, you have to name the head of that agency. In this case, that would be the head of the Department of Transportation. Would be Elaine Chow. Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell's wife. Right. Would um, you name her that way in the complaint? <laughs> Mrs. Mitch McConnell. Right. Yeah. Um, so she sues uh, – she she names some entities, but she names – instead of naming Elaine Chow, she names her own supervisor as a defendant, and that's not good enough. She named the agency and her supervisor. The agency and, and, and the supervisor. And they moved to dismiss – and then she because, realizes because when she re- right go ahead I'm sorry she, no that's okay she realized on the, when the motion to dismiss came along that she failed to name Elaine Chow yeah, so she names Elaine Chow and files but that's beyond the statute of limitations right so she's added Elaine Chow on a date after the statute of limitations ran and the question is does the original filing of the complaint work as the operative date so as to not bar the lawsuit because it would otherwise bar the lawsuit right right. And we look at now the relation back doctrine because she did amend, she did file it, um, and the question is, and that comes from Rule 15C of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, and that says that you can, an amendment relates back to the original filing if it's uh, something arising out of the same type of transaction, conduct, occurrence, and then if um, the party that you're adding to it, if that's the amendment you're making, if you're adding a party, if that party received such notice of the action that it will not be prejudiced in defending on the merits. So that's the question here. And then um, rule 15, 15C2 two. Uh, two specifically two. says that if the defendant is, a, is the United States government um, officer or agency, then you have to make sure that process was delivered or mailed to the United States attorney, um, the attorney general, or to the uh, officer and agency. So what we're really doing here with our two procedural rules. The first is, yeah. does the relation doc- doctrine, back doctrine apply? Relation back doctrine, yeah. And it does. 
It does. And then the second question, though, is now once you do that amendment, you've got 90 days to put on notice you have and you have to mail to the uh, attorney general of the United States, the uh, U.S. attorney for the district you're in, you're filing here, which I think here is Western District District of Washington. Washington? Yeah. And then finally, you have to send it also to Elaine Chow. That's right. And you... And well, not not always Elaine Chow, just the the, the uh, officer. sometimes Mrs. Mitch McConnell. No, no, the the, the, the officer of the agency. Right, but here yeah. it would have been Elaine Chow, so you would have right. had to send it to Elaine Chow. And so they get hung up on the second issue, which apparently she did send it to the by registered mail to the Attorney General of the United States and right. to the uh, the United States Attorney for the Western District of Washington, but she didn't send it to Elaine Chow. Well, and, and also what what she did mail was a copy of the summons that didn't include a signature from the clerk. So the lower court takes a very, what what the Court of Appeal refers to as a overly technical interpretation of the term process as used in Rule 15C2. And in Rule 15C2, it says uh, process was delivered or mailed to those uh, the list of people that Brian talked about. So they say that, well, it's not technically processed because it wasn't signed by the clerk of the court and therefore it doesn't comply with that requirement. And this court says, no, it does because she did actually give notice to the uh, U.S. attorney and the attorney general. And, and the last thing I want to say about this case is, you know, frankly, the lower court ruling and these procedural rules are kind of bullshit. I mean, we're not talking about, all we're talking about somebody having their day in court. All we're saying is we're going to give this person their opportunity to be heard in the United States court. Especially in a case like this where their argument they're resorting to is, well, we got a copy of it, but look at it. It's not signed by the clerk of the court. All of this is a trap for the unwary. I mean, you know, nobody didn't know about this lawsuit. They all knew about this lawsuit. Right. The problem is that she didn't follow these little procedural rules and they got it. It was like gotchas, gotchas, gotchas. Yeah, this is the definition of a gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So I've I've vented enough about that. Let's go to our last case today, yeah, which is uh, a California Supreme Court case. Wishnev versus the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company. Uh, very interesting case, historically interesting case. And you know, yeah. when we do these, we really do learn stuff ourselves, and we learn an awful lot about things. And so we're here, sharing with you, and we're sharing. This is because sharing nice. is caring. Right. Right. Yeah. So Sesame Street for lawyers. <laughs> Word of the day? What, what was we it? Do. Inviolate is yeah. the word of the day. Do you have a num- number for the day? Can you say inviolate? What, what's the number for the day, Brian? The, t- we have one today. It's 1918, which is the which is the first time that the state of California came up with usury law. And the year of the Spanish influenza. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Which wiped out like more people than World War One. I, I think. You got through it. <laughs> right? You did, you did okay. Yeah. yeah. Look at you. I'm glad. Um, anyway, so Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company is a life insurance company, and life insurance companies—the way life insurance works—is depending on the type of policy. Work. Yeah, it can it can work as a um, you can take out the policy, and your premiums that you owe to the life insurance company can act as a uh, if you don't pay it, it can be a loan to you. You right? also build up a certain amount of cash value in certain Equity, types of yeah. life yeah. life insurance policies. And so what happened here is that, um, and really, I don't want to go too far down this this road because it's a simple fact, is that the plaintiff in this case had borrowed some money from his life insurance policies, 
and was he knew charged, interest would get charged, but he got charged compounded interest. compound interest. And right, he, and he argues that you can't do that, and it, he says it violates California's usury laws. So that's where I think the interesting part of the case starts, which is California had in 1918 had apparently quite a problem with people being overcharged interest. Sound familiar? Yeah. And these people- 100 years later, still the same. Right. Yeah. And and um, they passed an initiative. So the initiative process in California is embedded in the California Constitution. California was you know recently a state. It hadn't been a state for very long. I think it was in the 1850s. No, I did not. It was not there. Do not ask I know. No, the, we're talking about 1918. Yeah, that's much longer- before your time. And the the uh so the one of the initiatives they passed was an anti-usury initiative in 1918. So interesting, I didn't know that there was an anti uh init- an anti-usury usury initiative, initiative. Or, or law until then. Um and what it did with uh, w- with the statutory scheme was it created a kind of one size fits all limitation on interest rates applicable to all lenders. Applicable to all lenders, I think and what was the dollar amount? I think it was 12%. Is it 12%? Maybe 12%. that could be our number of the day. So it was 10 or 12%. But then as time went by, not much time, but by 1934, they realized that this was just not working. The system wasn't working. And it there was a um, 1934 initiative, which among other things, it gave the legislature the power back to control usury laws. And it also created certain exemptions. But in the 1918 initiative, there was a prohibition against compounded interest. Unless an agreement to that effect is clearly expressed in writing and signed by the party to be charged therewith. Which just for the record hadn't happened here. Which, which hadn't happened here. Right. No. He signed he, – he filled out an application for the policy. Then they sent him the policy and included terms which allowed for compound interest. He hadn't signed that express agreement. So anyway, but but, but the protections that the 1918 law provided were, were kind of incredible. And this should be a model of what we should look at now. Yeah. It included things like you can't charge interest, compound interest, but if you do, um, the – the uh, borrower doesn't have to pay the money back until the end of the loan. Um, if you have charged compound interest, the borrower can sue you and get that money back in treble two, which means three. Another number. Of Thank the day. you. Yeah. Um, so it had a lot of a lot of protections. So it was. It's, it looked like a pretty comprehensive statute. It wasn't working. It probably wasn't working for the industry. Right, the loan industry. Oh, of course, that's not. probably was. Of course not. For. So they get this 1934 initiative. So we can assure ourselves that by 1934, the initiative process in California is being controlled mostly by big business. Yep. And they passed this initiative, and it was silent though on whether or not the compounded interest rule had been repealed. It makes no mention of compound interest limitations. But what it does do is have a certain exempt class of um, businesses which are not subject to any user right laws. it's no longer one size fits all and some of the exempt uh, lenders include credit unions okay licensed pawnbrokers those that probably be, made you happy th- those are <laughs> yeah for my pawn, pawn business on yeah, the side right yeah um, so th- that's a good class Certain of people we banks, want charging interest you know but insurance companies weren't exempt right until 1981 when the legislature passed a um, a bill or a statute that said now insurance companies are exempt from it so that's Northwest Mutual. So the question in this case... How'd they get that done, you think? Uh, they're called lobbyists, Sean. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you and think they have money to, to lobby the legislature? The insurance I, I think they have a lot of money to lobby, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you know, one of the reasons is the insurance lobby in California was so huge and so large. That's one of the reasons why Prop 103 was passed um, a few years after this went into effect in 1981. It was in the, the late 80s which made the insurance commissioner of the state of California an elected official. 
Yeah. Because the public was tired of the um, the strength of the insurance industry in California. Yeah. So the kind of the cut to the chase here in the case, the California Supreme Court finds as a result of um, Northwest Mutual being an insurance company, an admitted insurer in California, that they're not subject to the usury laws, and then goes on to find that the compounding rule, um, although silent in the 1934 um, uh, initiative, was in fact repealed for um, exempt insurer exempt yeah. uh, lenders, right? Um, it looks to the 1934 amendment because um, which contained language that says the provisions of this section shall, shall supersede all provisions of the of this constitution and laws enacted thereunder in conflict therewith. So there's a lot of you know they paid a, they put a lot of weight on that language there. So that restriction was I guess repealed along with the 1934 amendment. So um, big win right here for the uh, insurance industry. Yeah, I mean, big win for the insurance industry. Obviously, that's why a number of the amicus were uh, insurers who had filed and, and, and submitted amicus on this. But I just want to say, going back to what you were saying before, is, you know, we really do have a huge disparity here in this country. And um, there are companies out there that charge huge interest rates for loans, Right for maybe unsecured yeah. loans or for or for loans, and, and they target the more vulnerable people sometimes. that cannot afford that. Sometimes, I mean, there's also business type loans, non recourse loans. We see them in the plaintiffs community an awful lot, where people are paying twenty five percent for hedge fund money to borrow it, but it may be um, non recourse or the risk may be very high. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have you know relatively poor people in this country. And that pe- can use the money that actually can make use of it, but they get charged. And people like you and me are probably paying two or three percent interest, and people yeah. like that are probably paying twenty five percent or more. Yeah, I mean it's almost like loan sharking. So hey, it, it, this is an important issue. This this might be uh, you know the next kind of frontier for a battle for uh, you know consumer advocates loans, to fight short term yeah. loans. Yeah, huge problem. It it becomes a slippery slope, and somebody gets trapped on it. So yeah. Uh, Interesting case, interesting historical case about California. I didn't know any of that. Um, And that's all we got for today, right? Yeah, that's all. So we're always interested in talking to you about interesting issues, your cases, anything you'd like to share with us, anything you'd like us to cover, let us know. Or complaints, things like that. Complaints About About you. About Brian. About you. About Brian. Uh, But anyway, thank you for tuning in. Uh, You could find us at kbklawyers.com. Please reach out. We'd love to hear your feedback, and uh, we'll see you next time.